millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. The least tempting offer in the world must be someone suggesting that you sign up for another email. But the Make Work Better email is a weekly digest of all the latest discussion on what's happening in the world of work. So that might be just looking at the the latest discussion and debate on how cities are anticipating big declines and there's there's been a lot of coverage in the last few days about some of the big cities around the world seeing a decline in uh, rental demand which is probably the first sign that something is about to give so if you're interested in that go to the website eatsleepworkrepeat.com and you'll see uh, the opportunity to sign up at the very top and it'll give you sort of pointers it might well be that your your bosses are asking you a perspective or people are interested in what's going to happen next in work and I try to gather all of that information together. So sign up for that. I'm delighted today to be talking to management guru Gary Hamill. Gary's famed for being one of the most disruptive management thinkers in the game. I think when I was back in publishing, uh, my firm paid Gary Hamill to come in and talk to us at one of those one of those leadership things and we, he came in and if I seem to remember rightly, it was sort of just around the dot-com bubble. Uh, he advised us very strongly to stop doing what we were doing. And Gary's sort of become famous for being a disruptive management thinker. So Forbes called him the leading expert on business strategy. The Wall Street Journal called him the world's number one business thinker. But until now, he'd never managed to secure an interview on Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. So massive day for us both. Gary, along with his co-writer, Michelle Zanini, has written a new book with a slightly corny title, Humanocracy. I get given a lot of books that sort of have those cheesy titles. I have to say, I, I winced a bit when I saw it. I've become more and more adept at scanning through books that get that get sent to me but actually I really I, I, I kind of enjoy this one I think Gary buries the lead slightly so basically on page 40 something of this book there's a telling stat that he says one third of the US wage bill goes on bureaucracy and by bureaucracy he means middle management and admin stuff he says that if we can eliminate bureaucracy then work becomes more fulfilling and is more rewarding so Actually, the book is brilliant. If you're interested, I've written a long review of it and the themes on the website. You can find that in the show notes below. But I actually thought the the ideas were 
really focused and fascinating here. Here he is, London Business School's Gary Hamill. Gary, thank you so much for your time and and chatting to us today. Firstly, are you well? Are you safe and sound at the moment? Uh, Hanging in there. I hope everyone else is as well. <laughs> strange, yeah, it's a sort of strange times for all of us. What, what's your take on the experience we're going through? What do you think the lasting impact of this is going to be on the the world of work? I think it's a little hard to say yet, but I think there are a couple of things that perhaps are obvious. I mean, obviously, uh, companies are uh, uh, understanding that people can work from home, that remote work uh, uh, is possible, and so certainly, I think you're going to see a lot more of that uh, continuing. And, uh, and a workforce that has grown accustomed to it is going to be, I think, uh, much more keen to do it. Uh, obviously, we don't want to be at home all the time, but I think that flexibility to work from home, that's, that's going to become kind of, I think, just a standard thing where it's possible. I think the second thing is, you know, in, in, a, in a crisis, by definition, power moves to the periphery, in a big crisis anyway. And what we've seen uh, in institutions, uh, healthcare businesses of all sorts, is that in the, cri- in, in the crisis, a lot of people on the front lines have had to kind of dust off their initiative and, and, and stand up and take responsibility, move the business forward. And they've done that, I think, in most cases, admirably. And at least a lot of the leaders I talked to, uh, this was a bit of a, of a wake up for them. I don't think they fully appreciated just the, the level of ingenuity and get up and go that their teams had. And uh, they're recognizing that a lot of those folks are not going to want to go back into a, a kind of more stultifying work environment like their newfound uh, uh, freedom and autonomy. And uh, so I'm hoping that that will be something that, that lasts as well. I suppose if I, if I put a third thing out there, this is a little harder to say, but you know, for sure COVID has been the most demanding uh, test imaginable of institutional resilience. And, and obviously a lot of institutions have, have come up short. A lot of government agencies and so on have, have, have been, were, were very slow to respond at the beginning, were uh, uh, not inclined to, to give up their prerogatives. Um, and that goes for, for a good number of political leaders as well, who are used to being able to bend reality by the sheer force of their will and found themselves up against something that was bigger than, than they were. Uh, and um, so I, you know, I think that will, in, in time, as, as, as we step back and we do all of the you know, post-action reviews, we will realize that our organizations are poorly suited for, for problems that are new, that are fast moving, uh, that are unprecedented. And of course, we live in a world where we're facing more and more of those challenges. COVID is perhaps the most demanding, but you know, racial injustice, income inequality, environmental change, uh, mass economic migration, um, uh, the potential uh, 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 impact of automation, all kinds of challenges we face as a species where we are going to need to turn on everyone's initiative, everyone's uh, imagination and creativity. And I think that point, uh, COVID has kind of maybe brought that home, uh, that point home in a way that, that, that will, uh, uh, you know, deepen the commitment to building organizations that are a little bit more resilient and capable than the ones we have now. Yeah, you talk about sort of power moving to the periphery and and people being um, surprised with the autonomy and organisation that that their colleagues have demonstrated. I wonder if you could do an audit on the state of trust in work then, because 
I, I'm really intrigued in this. You talk a lot about the importance of trust and, and giving trust to and, and power to individuals. Um, but a lot of people are still describing to me a situation. Uh, I chatted to someone just yesterday. He said he's doing 30 hours of video calls a week. And that strikes me that as a sort of contrast to this notion of trust that we've got, because when we're bringing people together for that amount of time, it suggests to me that we want to see them working as well as um, imagine them working. I wonder if you've got any perspective on that at all. Well, I mean, I think your suspicions are borne out by the data. I think there is very little trust in, in organizations and, and employees get this. I mean, the level of, of oversight and all the rule choked processes that govern their work, they understand uh, that uh, they are not trusted. And, uh, and, and, and more than that, that uh, often their leaders, their managers actually don't think they're very capable. Uh, and, and you see that in the evidence. We know, for example, that, that in the UK, uh, the amount of discretion people have in their jobs has, has been going down, not up for the last 20 years. Uh, we know that only one out of five employees believes their opinions matter at work. We need to know that only one out of 10 believes they have the freedom to experiment with new solutions, methods, and so on. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's a crazy situation in, in that, uh, you know, the average person you would meet walking around London, uh, you know, can, can, can afford a car. Uh, many of them will, will, will be able to afford their own dwelling of some sort. And yet those same people at work can't requisition, you know, a 300-pound uh, office chair without getting somebody's, you know, sign-off. And so the way we've organized work, you know, our, our organizations are essentially a caste system of, of managers and, and employees, of uh, thinkers and doers, the clever and the compliant. And, and that has infantilized a great swath of the workforce. And that, you know, that doesn't build trust. When you pe pe treat people as if they're not trustworthy – um, you know, then that's that's a pretty powerful message, and people disengage emotionally and intellectually from their work, which again is 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 what the evidence says. You know, when when Gallup surveys show consistently that the percentage of employees around the world who are highly engaged in their work is is less than twenty percent, less than one in five. That's an extraordinary indictment of the way our organizations are run, and 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 that's our argument in the new book is that we simply cannot afford that anymore. You say, I mean, when you talk about sort of can't afford and what we can afford, you come up with this number, which is a third of the US wage bill goes to bureaucracy. And it's just like, it's for me, it's like a show-stopping thought to consider. And so by bureaucracy there, you mean what, middle management and admin staff, is that right? Do, do you want to talk... So firstly, this idea that a third of the wage bill goes to bureaucracy is a really vivid idea. And what impact do you think that bureaucracy, first, what does it represent? Secondly, what impact does it have on the jobs that we do? So first, I would say, to, just to be clear, a, a third of the wage bill goes to managers, supervisors, administrators. So it, it does not go to uh, frontline employees. Um, uh, but also about a third of all hours of all activity in organizations is devoted to bureaucratic tasks. And we've seen this data, you know, we've looked at different countries around the world. It's, it's pretty consistent. In the U.S., between 1983 and 2019, uh, the, what I would call the bureaucratic class, managers, administrators, supervisors, and so on, uh, that, 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 that uh, as, as an employment group, the number of those individuals has grown by over over uh, uh, 200%. It's more than doubled, or sorry, more than 100%. It's more than doubled 
uh, over that time frame. If you look at all other job categories combined, uh, growth there has been less than 50%. So, so bureaucracy is growing wherever you look at it. And when you unpack that, uh, Bruce, carefully, you discover that it's not primarily being driven by external regulation. It's not primarily a matter of governments uh, imposing uh, more regulation, but it's primarily the internal dynamics of a bureaucracy. You know, every every new crisis, every new issue spawns a new CXO. We have now chief diversity officer, chief compliance officer, chief experience officer, chief digital officer, chief transformation officer. These are all you know interesting, tough problems to solve. But every one spawns its own its own bureaucracy. As organizations grow, levels get added, staff groups become more powerful. They justify their existence by issuing more more rules, asking for more data. And so, you know, bureaucracy is just like this ratchet that keeps kind of ratcheting up. And at the same time, and, you know, I, I, I cannot prove cause and effect, though I'm, I'm pretty suspicious. At the same time, as you would know, productivity growth across the OECD has been going down with dire consequences for improving our standard of living, for solving income inequality. And so uh, in, in that sense, no, I don't think we can afford it anymore. And, and the organizations that we profile in, in our book, what I, would, what I would call the post-bureaucratic vanguard, on average, they're operating with about half or sometimes much less than half of the bureaucratic load of a traditional organization. That means far, far fewer managers. We, uh, in the book, we, we give the example of Birdzorg, which is a, a Dutch uh, home health organization. They imply, uh, employ 16,000 uh, nurses and home carers, and they run a 16,000-person organization with two-line managers. So that's a span of control of one to 8,000. And, you know, most people would say that's like, it's impossible. No, it's not. You divide those those people into small teams. You give them all the data they need to be self-managing. You connect them together with a social platform where they can collaborate to solve bigger problems and share best practices. And you hold them deeply accountable for a P&L. And you find out that you have all the advantages of bureaucracy. You have the control, the coordination, the consistency, but with, all, with, with, with virtually no bureaucratic drag or overhead. So, so there's good reason to believe that we could cut the level of bureaucratic drag in our economies by about half. If we were to do that, we estimate that across the OECD, that would be about a $10 trillion gain in, in economic output in the UK, about 900 billion pounds, in the US about three $3.5 trillion. And if we were to achieve that over the next uh, decade or so, it would more than double uh, the productivity growth rate that we've seen over the last few years. And to our, and to our knowledge, there's no other proposal on the table, not improving education, more vocational education, not better, more incentives for capital investment, uh, not, not investment in infrastructure. There's no other uh, proposal that we've seen that would have a similarly uh, large impact on, on, on productivity. So, yeah, there's, there's an economic reason to care about this. There's a competitive reason because if, if you want to build an organization that can outrun change, bureaucracy has to die, simple as that. And, and then there's also a social reason for doing this, because we believe that it's kind of ethically the right thing to do to empower people on the front lines, to give them the chance to grow and learn and contribute in ways that today there is, is often denied to them. I'm interested in, in sort of laying the breadcrumb trail for how from from where we are to, to how we would get there. So sort of this ridding our businesses of bureaucracy, does that mean creating fewer middle managers? Does it mean that people would have bigger reporting lines? Are you suggesting that organizations are just too big and we should make mini organizations of, of what we've got? What are the ways that we would get there? How, could you characterize some firms that have maybe reaped the benefit of this, yeah. um, of this change? Oh, it's, a great, it's a great question, Bruce. Um, 
So let, let, let me give you a couple. Um, you know, uh, one uh, with which I'm quite uh, familiar is Hire. It's the Chinese uh, domestic appliance maker. They're the, they're the largest uh, such uh, business in the world with about 80,000 employees. They own GE appliances in North America, Candy in Europe, and obviously have a huge presence in China, also in Japan. And they made a decision um, about a decade ago. In fact, I remember my, my first meeting with, with Zhang Rumin, their kind of uh, pioneering uh, CEO. He was in my office in California uh, about 10 or 11 years ago. And I, at that time, I had written a book uh, called The Future of Management. And I argue that, that organizations needed to become much more like networks, that they needed to reflect the, the web itself. And he asked me, I remember the conversation, he said, Gary, has anybody ever done this? I said, no, I, this is my vision of what could be, but I don't think anybody's done it. He said, we're going to go do it. And, and that afternoon, he said, I want to build a company where every employee is their own CEO uh, because human beings are an end and not a means. So he was kind of quoting the categorical imperative there about, you know, the real value of human beings. And so, and I've stayed involved with them on and off in, in the years since. So they divided this 80,000 person organization into 4,000, what they would call micro enterprises. So each one of these is a small self-contained business. Each business has all of the rights uh, that you would typically associate or, or all the autonomy that you'd associate with a startup. So they, they, they have the right to set strategy, the right to hire and fire, the right to distribute rewards. There's a substantial upside for these teams. They all have very ambitious targets that if they hit them, uh, they can make a multiple of of their of their base pay, and then they're tied together by by internal contracts. So at a higher, let's say I'm running a small business, uh, a little micro enterprise that 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 makes an, an, or that sells three door refrigerators. I will contract for the design help, for sensors, for technology. I will contract for HR help with hiring and marketing, but I'm contracting with other micro enterprises inside of Hire. And, and I am free to contract or not. And if they can't serve me, I can go outside. So if an internal HR uh, microenterprise is not meeting my needs, I'm quite free to go buy those outside. So, so no microenterprise has, has a, a, a monopoly. And what, what is very interesting is in every one of those contracts, Bruce, um, whoever you're contracting with, there's, there's a part of their performance clause that ties their compensation to the success of that product in the marketplace. And so if in the end that three-door refrigerator doesn't succeed, everyone who supplies services in that little business, HR and, and manufacturer, everyone takes a hit. So, so uh, Zhang Ruman says, and it's, a, it's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but, but not too much. He said that today we do not pay our employees, the customer pays them. And if you think about it, in most organizations, it's a tiny fraction of employees whose compensation is at risk dependent on market outcomes. Most are insulated from market forces. And, um, you know, and so so you built these little businesses that are amazingly flexible, that are very ambitious, that feel like startups. And yet you have all the advantages of, of scale and scope that a large company has. And they also make it very easy for, for people to start new businesses. So if you have a have a new idea at hire, uh, you post it online. If anybody else is willing to sign up and help you, it becomes a, a, a little uh, a team. Uh, uh, the company will give you access to their network of venture capitalists. If you can find a venture capitalist who's willing to put a little fun, some money in, a hire will co-invest along with them with the right to, to buy out at, at, at future valuations. And so it's just dead easy to get to get something started. And as that little startup, you can go and contract with all these thousands of microenterprises to get resources so you can leverage the, the size and the scale of the companies that they are. So, you know, the, these alternatives do exist. They, they, they you know, uh, the, the companies that have figured out how to do this 
dramatically outperformed their rivals in terms of growth and profitability and productivity. And um, and uh, in, in, in making this journey, though it, it has to be said, a higher uh, redeployed 12,000 middle managers. Today, there's there's really only one level between frontline teams and the CEO. And in a typical organization that size, you'd probably have eight levels. And so most of those 12,000 um, uh, middle managers went and joined these small microenterprises. They weren't fired. Some of them left. Uh, but, you know, most of them went and joined these small microenterprises. But there was, there was no room left for people whose primary job was administration. Uh, who were simply, you know, sending commands down and aggregating data up in 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 a, in, in a world where every single team can have real time data and 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 their performance is visible immediately to everyone across the organization. You really don't need a lot of oversight and a lot of controllers and administrators keeping the trains running. You you cite something at one stage where you say, I I, just, I wonder if work is a bit mad is is one of the question I'm coming to. But um, the uh, you cite something which says that three quarters, seventy seven percent of young workers have a dream of running their own business one day, and to some extent, the, what what you're describing is trying to realize that ambition within a big organization. If I'm if I'm right, trying to sort of bring that entrepreneurial flair that three quarters of people say that they secretly harbor and trying to enable them to, to turn that into something productive. Is that you're, right? You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, uh, Bruce. Uh, and, and that's, that's a keen, a keen insight and, and, and a central argument of the book um, that, you know, the foundation for building a post bureaucratic organization is, is, is having every employee think and act like an owner. You know, if you, if you go back to the pre-industrial world when you had a lot of small proprietorships and, you know, maybe the average business was four or five employees, every employee pretty much every day met the customer. You saw them come in. You heard what they were asking for. You saw the owner uh, respond to them. You knew all of your colleagues. You knew what they did and how your activities all fit together. You knew kind of, you know, even though maybe the, 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 the owner didn't share the books, you had a pretty good sense on how the business was doing. And, of course, as businesses grew and scaled up, Employees were deprived of all of those of, of all those sorts of information, right? In a in a large company today, uh, there there are many, perhaps most employees never meet uh, uh, the customer. Um, uh, you 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 may never have a one on one with a CEO. Um, often you have little sense of financially how the business is doing. There nobody's sharing the detailed financial metrics. Uh, you know you know your ideas don't really matter, and so you know in in that sense. You, you don't any longer have the information that you need to be self-managing. And so what, what, uh, what to hire, what Nucor, the U.S. Steel Company, what Svenska Handelsbanken, uh, the Nordic Bank, what all these companies have done is they've created organizations in which, which people at the front lines have the information and the skills and the incentives and the freedom, those four critical things to think and act like owners. And now, of course, you still have to tie the organization together. You still have to get coordination. And today, you know, there's ways of getting that using social technology and so on, where rather than having somebody at the top sending down mandates and saying, well, you guys need to link up. You should all be using the same platform or doing the same thing. Today, people can, can talk to each other. They can find those opportunities for collective value added. They can act on them, find the solution that, that, that works for the best for the most of them. But you no longer need that to be a top-down kind of thing. So coordination is, is, is increasingly the result of collaboration rather than centralization. So, so yes, you turn on that entrepreneurial spirit and then you, you unleash that initiative and ingenuity when people really feel like this is my business. 
And, uh, you know, and it's not enough. Uh, you know, many companies have some, some form of employee stock ownership and, you know, an, an employee may have a few shares and own 0.00001% of the company, but that's not what it means to be an owner. An owner is, is really defined by autonomy, the right to make key decisions, and the right of participation in the financial uh, upside of that business. And virtually all of the organizations I describe in, in humanocracy, uh, th- that, that, that is true for them. It begs the question, what have we done wrong? And, and I'm just, you know, I, I've often heard in organizations I've been part of, I've heard the phrase, think like an owner. And it's, it almost becomes trite. Uh, in organizations because you're told to think like an owner, but then whenever you might suggest doing something a bit differently or uh, a bit of a, a, a local change, you're always given pushback. So, you know, it's sort of one of those phrases that companies will very willingly hang above the door. And it just, it begs a question for me, have we overvalued consistency? Have we overvalued you know, the, the globalization, the idea of globalization, that the same idea is applied in Tokyo, uh, Chicago, New York, Washington. Is that consistency overvalued? Well, again, I think it's, it's, it's a very good and a, and a, and a subtle point. Um, you know, bureaucracy was invented to solve a problem, and that problem was efficiency of scale. And, uh, or, or, or if you kind of dig one level down, it was, it was invented to solve the problem of control. Because to, to capture advantage of scale to drive down costs, you need to be able to do the same things over and over again with perfect replicability, right? Whether that was building a Model T 100 and some years ago, or whether that is, you know, building the chip that goes inside of an iPhone. Um, if you think, for example, the next, the next generation iPhone is probably going to have a, a system on a chip in it that is built uh, to five nanometer tolerances. And, and five nanometers is about the distance your fingernail will grow uh, in the next second. And so you think of how much control over how many variables do you need to be able to do that. I mean, control is a good thing. In an organization of any size, you need control over lots of things. The question is uh, maybe twofold. One is, is that the only thing you need? And the answer is today, like, no. In fact, you could argue that the economic gains in most businesses to control uh, relatively, they're still important, but relatively the economic gains to control and consistency are coming down versus the gains of adaptability and, and, and creativity and innovation. So it's still important, but not as important. And then the second thing is like, okay, are there other ways to get that control? Do you need layers of managers and all the rules? Or are there ways by making the performance of every unit very, very visible, by giving employees the, that, that data, by giving them the chance to solve problems? Are there ways of, of, of essentially buying control as a benefit duty-free? And, and many of these organizations, the answer seems to be yes. So, um, but, I, but I think, you know, our organizations still at heart are built uh, to, to, to maximize control. And what we're, at, what we're arguing in, in humanocracy is, well, control is important, but what we really need today is organizations that are built not to maximize conformance, but organizations that are, are built to maximize contribution. And that doesn't mean that everybody goes off and does you know, their own damn thing, as it were, but it does mean that you have to have an organization where people are free to experiment, uh, they're free to respond immediately to new customer needs, they're free to... Uh, um, um, uh, solve problems locally when they come up, that you are not paralyzed, you're not waiting for permission. And, uh, you know, because in, in that, in, in the bureaucratic model, the assumption was basically every standard, every rule, every protocol, every policy comes top down. And that top down model makes it very hard to change fast. And, and you know, typically in, a, in an organization with four or five or six or seven layers, by the time a new issue or a new problem is big enough, 
to attract the CEO's attention, it's already too late. Just the amount of time it takes for, and I'll give, I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking some years ago to the leaders at Intel, the big semiconductor company. And, uh, you know, I, we were talking about, you know, new, new opportunities and that, that might be out there on the horizon. And, and somebody said, Gary, we only want to go after an opportunity that's worth at least a billion dollars in revenue. I said, how would you know that, 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 that an opportunity was, was that sort of scale? And they thought about it. And, of course, the only way you know it is that somebody else has already done it, right? Nothing starts out as a billion-dollar opportunity. But, but in, a, in a company like Amazon where everybody's experimenting, trying new things, you know, you'll have a dozen people – playing around with an opportunity, testing it, talking to people, and, and the chance to get ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve in a way that simply does not happen when the whole organization is kind of in a, in a, in a, in a state of willing paralysis and is waiting for somebody at the top to say, this is important, this is our new strategic priority, off you go. I'm really struck the way that some organizations find their way into this. You, you talk a little bit about in, Intuit and, and they sort of, they decided that their route into it was to ditch PowerPoint decks to each other, presenting to each other and just facilitate a series of tests and, and experiments. And this, this spirit of experiments seems to be sort of a vivid beating heart of this movement away from bureaucracy. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. If, if ownership is a part of it, certainly another. We we lay out actually seven principles in the book that we think are are, are kind of the, the the foundations for the new DNA we need in our organizations. And experimentation is one of those. You know, if, if you think about it more more generally, the pace at which anything evolves is limited by the pace of experimentation that takes place. So uh, you and I, you know, we're the product of. Uh, roughly 4 billion years of uh, biological evolution and a lot of experimentation along the way through uh, gene drift and sexual recombination and mutation and so on. And so, you know, we, we are the best of the best in that sense of, of after all this experimentation. And, and it's the same thing is, is true for organizations. Renewal uh, uh, depends on, on, on experimentation. And so it's, you know, it's worrying that, uh, you know, in our surveys that we've done uh, with Harvard Business Review, is worrying that the vast majority of employees say that it's virtually impossible for a frontline employee to get a small amount of time and a little budget to try something new without wading through, you know, a jungle of bureaucracy. Uh, it's worrying that uh, more than two-thirds of employees say that new ideas are greeted with skepticism or outright hostility. And again, we, we can change this. In, in one large uh, a tech company that has uh, retailers spread around the world, um, we engaged uh, 70,000 employees on a platform where they, they are able to suggest ideas. What's going on in my geography, my store? What customer? What could I do with this? And where you start to see every, every store as a laboratory where you can, you know, within obviously legal bounds and financial bounds, risk bounds, but where you can start to experiment. But by and large, we have just not seen uh, uh, our organization in that way. We've not, we've not viewed the entire organization as a laboratory. You know, I, I think it's significant that, that Jeff Bezos at Amazon has said many times, he, he said uh, that, that his goal is to build the world's biggest laboratory. We're, we're simply going to try more things. And, of course, what that means is the cost per experimentation has to be low. You have to kind of maximize the ratio of learning over investment and risk. But he's also said, I want to build an organization where, where it's the best place to fail. And if you know that something's going to succeed at the outset, it's not an experiment. And by definition, Almost by definition, if you know it's going to succeed at the outset, it is incremental. You have enough data. It's, it's close enough to what you're already doing to say, yeah, that's probably going to work. 
So, and it may, but, but, but for sure, it's not going to give you a breakout success. So that's another, you know, principle that we have to look at and say, right, if we took this thing seriously, if we wanted every organized, every, every employee to have, have that capability, what would we do? Right. At Intel, every single employee within, within a few months of being hired goes through a program called Design to Delight, which te- teaches them the basic principles of design thinking, teaches them rapid prototyping and experimentation. And it's just, it's just a given that this is how you're going to drive, drive the business forward. Many employees are, are still not viewed in that way and they have not been equipped or empowered uh, to, to, to experiment and test right where they are. And as a result, you're going to have an organization that 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 uh, is consistently caught behind the curve. And and just trying to apply some of this to this strange new world that we're living in now. So the 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 world where maybe you know a lot of us won't work in an office together with colleagues every day, or that maybe we'll work two or three days a week from an office, but we'll work remotely. Um, there appears to me to be advantages if we do move down to smaller units and smaller self self-contained units, and we sort of we we move a little bit away from centralization and coordination, which often creates a lot of these meetings and the the need for meetings. It seems like this the scope for it to be a very timely change for me. You know, I, I'm really taken with what you talk about, and I've I've read. Ken Iverson's book before about Nucor and, and their spirit and the ideas that they used to have where even the marketing was done in a local steel mill or, you know, even the payroll was done in a local steel mill and the central, I think you say the central costs for Nucor was 3%, which the, the industry average was 6%. So like they, they kept the central bureaucracy really small and it feels like actually if anyone wanted to channel some of that, this time of remote working could be a great opportunity to experiment with reducing this burden. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think it's true, but I want to separate out two aspects to that, uh, Bruce. We've had the tools for some time now, you know, getting on a decade at least, to uh, allow people to kind of work remotely and still be very much in touch and, and, and very coordinated. And, you know, things like Slack and there were things before Slack and Microsoft Teams and, of course, Zoom and all the rest allows us to do this. And yet what's interesting is even as these technologies have become more available, what employees tell us is they have less discretion because all of the technologies that allow people to work together and collaborate kind of horizontally also allow managers to exert more control. Now I can, you know, thanks to analytics and data, I know exactly what each employee is doing, how productive they are. And, and I mean, I remember talking to um, uh, the CEO of one of the biggest technology companies in the world saying, I can now run the company from my G5, from my, from my, my, my jet, because I have all this data. And I had to remind him, like, data is not context. And data is, by definition, retrospective. And data will never help you find the new thing. And so, but there is this, this great temptation to use all of this data to kind of micromanage people. I was, I was talking to Jim uh, Schnabe, who was um, co-CEO of SAP, the German software company, now uh, non-exec chairman of Maersk uh, in Holland and, and, uh, and Siemens. And he said that when he left SAP, the company had 50,000 KPIs. So, so there is a conceit behind that. And the executive conceit is that we can model out what good performance looks like. We can assign every single employee a detailed rule book on what they need to do. 
and that somehow that will all aggregate back up into extraordinary performance. But it is a conceit. It does not reflect reality. There's no small group of people at the top who can anticipate, model, and dimensionalize every uh, thing that's important for performance, much less anticipate what's out there on, on the horizon. And so I think we're kind of in a, in, a, in a battle of forces at the moment. Yes, you have the forces that are pushing us to decentralization and autonomy. That is, you know, accelerated change. It's the ability of people to work remotely. And I would say even more importantly than simply the remote part, it's the ability of employees to connect laterally, right? In, in the old days, virtually all the communication channels and organizations ran vertically. And now increasingly they run laterally. And, 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 and so, you know, managers are really no longer in charge of the conversation. Some would like to still think they are, but mostly they're not. That's happening kind of horizontally across organizations. So you have those forces on one hand, but then on the other hand, um, you know, the, the, the same complexity that I think is driving us to decentralization is that, the, you know, I, I think right now a lot of executives are learning a very painful uh, lesson, and that is, you cannot compete in a networked world with a hierarchical organization. But, but even though that lesson is there and they should be learning it, there's still that, that reflexive desire to be in control because that's what being a manager meant. It meant I knew everything that was going on. I could tell you instantly what, what was happening in every part of my business around, around the globe. And, 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 and the definition of a bad manager was this, at, that, that I might get surprised. And so you have these countervailing forces of, of – of, of the speed of change and the natural desire for autonomy and the technology supporting that pushing power out. But at the same time, the old guard is not likely to give up without a fight. And, and in a perverse kind of way, Bruce, often I think this, the, the greater complexity that we face today in our world leads to more centralization because one of the ways of, of soothing yourself as a leader uh, in a world of complexity is to Try to ensure that everyone around the world in your organization is doing the same thing. Because if, if I can just go to bed at night believing that we have a policy for everything, that everybody is coloring inside the lines. And so a lot of the centralization, a lot of the forced harmonization you see in organizations, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, Yukar, let's, 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 let's set all of our HR policies centrally. Let's, let's set all our manufacturing protocols centrally, right? Let's do all of our training centrally. All of these desires to make sure we're doing it all the same, I think a huge part of that is simply executives who are trying to somehow squeeze the complexity of the world into a shape that, that can be comprehended by their own minds, right? They're, they're trying to, to, you know, they're trying to deal with, the, with their own cognitive limits by creating the appearance of uniformity and, and control where actually it doesn't exist. It is, it is a myth. But but it's a, it's a self comforting myth as myths often are, and so you know they 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 hold to that. But but it's a it's going to be a losing battle for them, I think. More from my discussion with Gary Hamill after this. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now back to my chat with Gary Hamill. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I can sort of see, we've seen, you know, the, the gods of standardization, you know, consumer products are the obvious place for it. The, the, whether it, you're the president or, um, or a homeless person, a can of Coca-Cola tastes exactly the same. You know, McDonald's burgers will taste the same from coast to coast, from country to country. And so we've seen that, you know, big brands and global brands that we admire get this continuity, they get this consistency. But when it comes to a lot of other things, it, it seems that it's almost at the expense of the ingenuity of the knowledge workers involved. And if we're ending up, you, you say one stat in the book, which I, I'd, I'd love to know the source of it, actually. You say 86% of British people say they can't make decisions over the nature of their work. Um, and, you know, people are, are coming into knowledge jobs and they're maybe filled with this hope that they want to apply their ingenuity. Very quickly, they learn that they can't do that. And it's, it's almost to no advantage as well. It's not like companies are, are enhanced by knocking that uh, inventiveness out of people. It's sort of, it, it's almost, it's remarkable that we've reached this demoralized state well, of work. I, I would, I, again, I, th- I think there are two things there. And, and one, one, I, uh, and again, these are both obviously deep topics, but maybe I can make a very quick comment on, on one and a little bit longer one on the second point. The first point is obviously, you know, these, these forces between uniformity or consistency and, and adaptability and innovation, there, there's a paradox here, right? You, you need them both. It is not, it is not one, one or, or the other. And so, we, we, you know, one of the principles we talk in the book is the principle of paradox and the fact that, you know, consistency does matter. When I, when I you know, when I go into uh, an Apple store anywhere around the world, I want to know that what I'm looking for is likely to be on the shelves. I want probably a reasonably consistent experience. I want them to be able to look up my, my, my purchase history, right? That's We expect that today. And so the, the trick is not to trade one advantage for another. And for years, for years, management pundits told organizations you had to choose. And so if you're a big company, they said you really can't be innovative. The only way you can hope to innovate is you put a little innovative venture, an accelerator, an incubator off somewhere. You protect it from all those dunderheads, you know, and, and the core business. And, of course, that doesn't work for all reasons we outline in the book. So, so we do need people on the front lines who are smart enough every day to understand consistency creates value. So, so don't let me change something for the sheer sake of changing it. Don't let me degrade the customer experience. Don't let me degrade our scale economies just because I can't be bothered to understand what somebody else did or I'm bloody-minded enough that I want to do it in a different way. That is not acceptable. But they also have to have enough data to know that 
at some point, doing it the same way is not working for customers or not helping us with the new opportunity. And then the, 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 the ability to tweak that and change that. And so it, it does come back to you know where we started in a way, Bruce. People who on the front lines who have the information, have the sophistication to make those real-time trade-offs. So those trade-offs are not made at somebody in the center. They're made locally where people have the information and skills to make, to, to make them. And I believe most people have that, that sort of competence. You know, you talked about Nucor, uh, ultimate kind of blue-collar company. Um, the, the, the people, the, the, the folks that quote kind of at the top at Nucor would tell you that being a manager there is the least noble job. Uh, that it is the people on the front lines. But but you have literally hard hat wearing blue collar employees who are making huge capital investment decisions, experimenting every day with new methods and tools out there talking to customers, innovating, and they've unleashed kind of the everyday genius of, of, of every employee. And so, yeah, it is, it is dispiriting when you come to work and you do not have that opportunity. And I think, you know, it, it's worth maybe just locating all of this for a moment in kind of the current political dramas that we see uh, roiling around us. Uh, as as you and, and, and all of our listeners would know, over the last uh, few years, the establishment has taken a beating everywhere you look. And, and from both sides of the political spectrum, whether it is uh, the drain the swamp Trump voters or all those people who are supporting Bernie Sanders who want to give socialism another chance in the UK, whether it was all, you know, the Brexiteers, uh, who are fed up with meddling from Brussels, or whether it was, you know, the, the the labor supporters and particularly the young people who are looking at the economy and saying this simply, you know, this doesn't seem very just. Uh, the yellow vests in 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 France. I mean, wherever you look around the world, you see this. And and whether these people come from left to right, the one thing they they share in common is a belief that the system is not working for them. And, and, and when you look at the data, you understand why they're frustrated. When you look at the income inequality, uh, when you look at um, uh, the enormous pressure on wages, uh, you look at the percentage of the wage force in the UK or the US that is now in quotes, uh, that is in low wage jobs, there's a reason people are frustrated. You know, every human being uh, wants dignity, opportunity, and equity. And often those things are not easy to find at work. Right? For many employees, they don't really feel like their contribution matters. They, they are treated like resources. They are treated like commodities. Uh, their opinions are not heard. Uh, they feel very little, they have very little opportunity to grow their skills and their competence. And when it comes to doling out the rewards, you know, they, they feel that they are not getting a fair shake at any upside. And, and unfortunately, there's kind of a self-fulfilling uh, uh, dimension to all of this because when you assume that people in, in quotes, low-skilled jobs, when you, when you uh, uh, assume that those are low-capability people, which is not the case, as Nucor and others demonstrate, but when you assume that low, so-called low-skilled jobs are filled with low-capability people and you do not give them the autonomy, you don't train them, you don't give them the opportunity to grow, then at the end of the year you go like, well, they didn't do much. They, just like, they were kind of like semi-programmable robots and did what we asked them to do. And it reinforces the notion that you know there's, there's not much capability in those people. I... I would hope one of the things that I hope will come out of out of our book it probably won't do it by itself. But as we as we stop talking about low skilled jobs, I do not think there's any such thing as a low skilled job, right? There's a lot of jobs. I mean, the data in the U.S. the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says that 70% of U.S. jobs are designed in a way where there's almost no scope for people to to to, to use their originality. That, that says nothing about the people in those jobs and everything about the way we design those jobs and the kind of um, uh, arrogant, I would say, uh, assumptions we have about 
the people fulfilling those works and fulfilling, fulfilling those jobs. So I think, yeah, it is dispiriting and demoralizing. And I think as, as well as being economically and competitively, you know, kind of dumb, I, I just think it's ethically uh, indefensible that we haven't done more to give people on the front lines the opportunity to, to you know, to, to, to grow. And I think, you know, all the call, the things we're seeing now, the protests around racial injustice, you know, it's, it's hard for somebody to feel like they have dignity and opportunity and equity in their life if they're not finding it at work. Yeah, this is a strange thing. It just as as you're talking there, I um I I've just left Twitter. I, I I worked for a Twitter for eight years, and and you know one of the things that definitely I think a more connected world has facilitated is that a company's service is on show all the time, and as a result of that, the um the that standardisation often comes from that. That you might rent a car in one city, and the service will be held up and and put on social media display. And I guess, you know, it, it can contribute to an innate sense of conservatism. You've mentioned that organizations want to be in control. But it, it seems, you know, back to paradoxes and conflict, it seems that often the opposite can be the case. So the, one of the stories that's incredibly vivid that you tell, talk about is the United Airlines flight where they they throw off a passenger um, and they they drag him quite brutally. A passenger who they had tried to get to the, the plane was overbooked to try and get this guy to to disembark the flight, and he refuses to do it. And uh, and obviously, you know, in a world where we're all scared about being perceived as being giving an inconsistent service, this was far more injurious to their reputation than than anything else. Uh, do you want to sort of describe what what happened in that story and and what the fallout from it was? You know, it was a passenger, as you say, who, who 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 didn't want to give up his seat. At the last minute, they discovered they needed to reposition some crew to another city to uh, take take on another flight, and they wanted some passengers off so the crew could get on board. And in those situations, you usually offer certain kind of level of incentives, a few hundred dollars to uh, give up your seat and take a later flight. No one was willing, you know, to do that. And and the staff there at the gate that day did not have the authority to up, up the rewards or to come up with a more creative solution like, you know, chartering a small plane to get the crew there some other way. And so in the end, this uh, unwilling and unwilling person was drug off the plane, uh, bloodied up, and, and the whole thing was filmed, and it became maybe one of the worst PR disasters in history. But what, what was interesting, Bruce, is in the – in the aftermath, um, obviously there was there was a lot of soul searching at United, but but it, but it didn't go deep enough because uh, a couple of months afterwards, uh, the then uh, CEO Oscar Munoz was uh, interviewed um, on television by a business journalist and was asked, "Well, what did you learn from this?" And 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 I, I don't have his comments in front of me, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it pretty closely. He said, "What we learned is that our employees do not have the procedures, the guidance, the rules that would allow them to use their judgment." And, 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 and what I don't think he understood was incredible irony in the way you phrased that, that they didn't have the rules, the procedures, the guidance to use their own judgment. And, of course, those are substitutes for judgment. Uh, and it was precisely, you know, too many rules and too many so on that prevented those people from using their imagination to solve, solve the problems they saw best. And I think for a lot of leaders, the idea that your organization's fate ultimately rests on the judgment of people on the front lines is just too scary to contemplate. 
And so, you know, it's, it's telling and, 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 and somebody may come back and, and, and say, I have this wrong, but from, from, from what I, what I, what I, what I believe is true, I think the employee uh, manual at United Airlines runs to over 60 pages. The manual at Southwest Airlines, which is the most profitable and the most loved airline in the United States, is five pages. And it tells you a lot of what you need to know, just that. And so, um, yeah, and, and, and so we infantilize employees. We, we, and, 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 you know, and they're as frustrated by it as we are. You know, most people, you want to do the right thing for customers. So I, I would say the broader point is, you know, there, there is for sure this tendency, this, this tension between consistency and, and kind of um, uh, uh, adaptability on the front lines or between, if you like, uh, a scale and efficiency or creativity and discipline. Um, but, but, but here's, here's the thing. First of all, many times those trade-offs are not as uh, irreconcilable as they seem. There are ways of, of getting the both and, and we talk about that in the book, but, but even if they were in some senses irreconcilable, um, the economic value of, of, of scale consistency, it just isn't what it used to be. And, uh, so if you look at the value that's gets created in our economy today, it's the people doing the new things and trying the new things. Uh, you know, we, we want experiences, not just, you know, completely consistent, uh, uh, products. And so as, as much as I like, you know, as much as I'm sold on, on having an Apple MacBook, what I really enjoy is if I do have to ask a question, I go online to Apple service, I get somebody who is brilliantly creative in solving my problem, will talk me through whatever, make sure that I'm happy. I mean, it's that personal experience, right? Go into the store and I get some of the genius bar to help me out. I mean, that's, that's as much the thing as the product itself. So I think, um, you know, I think, I think leaders are, 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 are going to slowly come to understand this, I think, but it's going to be a long slog because, you know, bureaucracy is, is a massive multiplayer game. And, uh, and winning that game is not primarily about producing business results. Winning the game is about learning how to negotiate targets, how to manage up, how to hoard resources, uh, how to deflect blame, how to hog credit. And, you know, again, from our research, Bruce, uh, 76% of, of, of employees tell us that the primary way you get ahead in their organization is being a, a good bureaucrat. And, and I don't know whether that's literally true or not. I wouldn't even know really how to assess whether it's literally true or not. But if people believe it's true, that's almost all you need to know. Because what that says to them is if you want to get ahead here, you have to master the dark arts of bureaucratic infighting. And the challenge with doing what Nucor has done or, or Hire or some of these other organizations is there's no way to build a post-bureaucratic organization without redistributing power. And, you know, you may have noticed that people at power are like often reluctant to give it up. And if you've spent, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years climbing the greasy poles, you know, of bureaucracy and accumulating positional authority and the perks that go out along with that. And then somebody comes and tells you, hey, you know what, we need you to learn a new game. Right. Uh, you know, like most people are not very willing to do that, or at least many aren't. And so there's a political challenge here as well, because. Uh, busting bureaucracy means people at the top coming to that kind of self-realization and saying, you know what, this is not the best way to lead an organization. This really isn't working for me. It isn't working for the people around me. I need to rethink how I lead, manage, organize, and so on. And it's, it's telling, Bruce, that in the Gallup data, managers are even less engaged than their employees. And because, you know, nobody really likes being a micromanager. Nobody likes, you know, waking up every day and being in a, in a position where you have to treat adults as if they're like 13 years old. 
And so, and, and, you know, and they're treated the, the same way by the people above them. So it's not like the system is really working for anybody, but you do have to coach people and help people through and say, guys, there is another way of, of making a difference in this organization, of having influence. It doesn't necessarily depend on positional power. And it's going to take maybe some time for you to learn how to play that new game, to get out of those habits. But it is possible. We've seen this happen. We have a whole story on Michelin in the book and, and what they've been doing around this amazing story of empowering the front lines and, and, and redefining the, the value added of leaders. So I'm optimistic it can be done. But, but you know, b- bureaucracy continues to exist and grow not absent human intention, right? It's not like this uh, this completely uh, uh, anonymous, uh, you know, machine-like force that just grows. It, 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 it all comes back to the human quest for power. And so bureaucracy grows because it's a way of accumulating power and, and, and it's the game for which, you know, it's, it's the, the prize for which the game of bureaucracy is played is, is positional power and advancing. And, you know, we got we to gotta change that game. You know, in, in, my, in my profession, there is no positional power as, as a management thinker, as a researcher, as a teacher. My students, uh, my peers evaluate my work every day. There's no, there's no boss who tells me what to do. But I can tell you, they hold me accountable. And if I don't do a good job, I sure as heck uh, know about it. So I have a little bit of influence out there. But that influence doesn't come from my positional power. In the same way, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on social media more generally, you know, if, if, you have, if you're an influencer, if you have people follow you, Nobody made you an influencer. You did it because you are adding some sort of value. People are making the choice every day to follow you or not. And I think that's how power needs to work in our organization. It needs to be incredibly fluid. If you're adding value, people will want to line up behind you. If they think you're inspiring, have a point of view about the future, are generous with your credit, are a good mentor. And if you're not, they're going to vote you off the island. I think that's just how it should be. We're almost out of time, but but tell me, sort of, can all organizations or can most organizations set about this change of ridding themselves of bureaucracy? I, I, I think so. And, and the reason I say that is not just, you know, hopefully wishful thinking, but because we've seen organizations from every geography across every industry and of every size and, and, and representing a, a wide spectrum of, of kind of complexity. So from, you know, a tomato processor with a few hundred people to a company the size of a hire to a home health organization in the Netherlands to, you know, a bank across the north of Europe. Uh, and, and I think, you know, this is as important as this is for large companies. It's very important for small companies to, to get this right at the outset because, I, you know, having lived in Silicon Valley now for better part of 30 years – I see this movie over and over again. We have a, have a young company with a really cool new business model. You know, they're fast, flat, free, lean, all these things that, that, that give them an advantage. And yet as they grow, they start to hire managers from incumbent companies. And, uh, and pretty soon they look like every other company. And, and they run out of that, you know, they lose the innovation zeal. They lose the speed and everything else. So I think particularly if you're a smaller business today, you want to say, what are the principles I need to hold uh, sacred as I grow this organization. And so, you know, many of the organizations we describe in the book, they started small, but they started with a very different set of principles. You know, Birdsog, now, now 16,000 people, the, the, their, their founding principle was humanity over bureaucracy. And also this sense of ownership that we talked about, Bruce. So if I'm a small business and, and, and you, want, you want to inoculate yourself against bureau sclerosis, then right from the beginning, you have to understand what these principles are. You have, to, you have to say, whatever we do, we're not going to let bureaucracy grow. You have to be highly alert to the, to the warning signs of bureaucracy. And we lay out in the book what those are and how to measure 
uh, things like uh, conservatism and insularity and inertia and so on, be super clear, measure where bureaucracy is starting to kind of overtake your organization, be really clear about the principles that are going to help you, uh, uh, you know, stay uh, young and hungry and vibrant. And, you know, you can avoid, you can avoid uh, what so often seems is just the inevitable uh, price of success and size. It's such a fascinating exploration and I loved the organizations you talk about and I and um, I think you know it goes to the very heart of the lived experience of so many people in their jobs that they wish they would be able to get on with the job they love and you know they, they wish that they didn't have so many layers of management and approvals that I think you know the book feels incredibly timely because so many organizations right now are thinking how can they reinvent a new version of themselves and organizations are being more reflective i think than they have been before so this feels like a really timely provocation if organizations are willing to make the next step i think gary i'm so i'm so grateful for the the opportunity to talk to you uh thank you it's, a, it's been a wonderful chat yeah thank you thank you bruce for for your insightful uh, questions and comments as well. Uh, it, it is always helpful to me to have this kind of a conversation, see how other people are thinking and, and, and acting. And, and, I, and I hope it is, it is useful to all the, the, the listeners as well. And I, I would encourage them, you know, they can find a lot more materials. It's all free at, at GaryHamill.com and including a new course that's free for anybody who wants to take it. So our goal is really to equip people to make this difference in, in their organizations, wherever they start from and whatever their current positional power. So there you go. I was really won over by Gary's relentless focus on getting rid of bureaucracy. As we go into the second half of the year, there's, there's going to be lots of weariness and lots of burnout. Many people are feeling that they're doing relentless meetings, meetings about meetings, pre-meeting before the meeting. And it's going to start taking a toll. I think we've seen some stats on this that people are reporting working longer than ever before. And even if we've eliminated the commute for a lot of us, it is starting to have an impact. So any organisation that can think about reducing their weight of bureaucracy seems likely to benefit. Interesting. Thank you for listening. I've got another episode about the transformation of work coming up, more interviews with people, uh, and that'll be coming up next week. Thank you for listening. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.